And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Crank up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! The art of the crowd silencing goal. What the ultimate last minute winner should look like. The tiny things that make an amateur footballer feel like a Premier League ace. Relentless post match outrage. Pundits who've simply forgotten what it's like to be a player out on the pitch. And Harry Redknapp tweeting about crypto. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 113 of the Football Clichés podcast. I'm Adam Hurry and with me is Charlie Eccleshare. How is it going? It's going well. How about you? I'm not too bad, not too bad. Today we've got another edition of Mesa Harland Dicks. This is where our star guest picks three things they love about football and three things that they just irrationally hate. And uh, I'm excited about this one because we have former Manchester City defender, podcaster, broadcaster, author and scorer of the most leisurely looking <laughs> solo goal in Premier League history. It's Nader Manoa. How's it going? Welcome to Football Clichés. You've, you've, you started off on the right foot there. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> I'm... I'm I'm fascinated by um, this goal he scored for Sutherland. Yeah. It was in a 3-0 win against Chelsea at Stafford Bridge in November 2010. Um, I've never really seen a goal like it. And, it. and not just because it was a defender scoring it. I mean, and it, and it looks unique in that respect. Mm. But it's, it's a very strange solo goal. Um, yeah. I think we should enjoy a clip of it. I mean, for anyone who's never seen it, they're tough. This is a podcast. But let's let's just enjoy it in all its glory, can we? Nader Manuha. Oh, he's going on a slalom run! That's unbelievable! An extraordinary goal from Nader Manuha. It's the first time a visiting player has scored at the bridge this season, and what a goal! Well, it's unbelievable. Look at all the blue shirts. He shapes up, drops a shoulder, a little toe, another toe, just takes it away. Not what we're accustomed to seeing from Nader Manuha, but it's a brilliant goal. <laughs> Lovely little dig from the co-commentator there. I'm, I'm guessing Paul Walsh, but I'm really not sure. Um, but yeah, it's the, the whole picture is painted for us there, I think. Did they say that was the first goal that he conceded from an away play all season? Yeah, no, no to way. November. Which in is November, great. yeah. Wow, I didn't know I was that iconic, to be honest. Did the lads not tell you about that in the dressing room before the game? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it was... Um, if it was such such an such an interesting moment because so many things are wrong with that goal. Like I was supposed to be playing right back. Yeah. So why am I in the middle of the field? Yeah. When I get the ball, why is nobody coming out to me? Like and this is just before half time as well. So why is it why does it feel to be that open? But 
again, like I scored it and I was so tired, I couldn't really celebrate fully, <laughs> which was really annoying. But then to go in at half time and to have people come in patting you on the back and stuff, it was cool. But the best thing about it was the fact we won 3 0. And yep. that was the game that was on TV on the Sunday. Oh, yeah. and, and Steve Bruce said before the game, like, people always tune into stuff that happens in London. People are watching wherever. Like, that's if you want to make it, you make it in London. Wow. And he was saying that probably hoping that, you know, we don't get battered. So to then to come out with a 3-0 win, I think that was the most messages I've ever received in my career after a game, after beating that's- Chelsea 3-0 on the Sunday. That's the most it's, unusual rallying cry before a game I've ever heard, Charlie. I've never heard a manager sort of say, guys, true, though, you're in London. I'd never never even realised it. But all of a sudden, you like from that time, you're like, well, England managers and stuff, they do tend to go to games mm. down south or like they don't really travel north-north, especially when we're in Sunderland. Right. So if somebody's doing well, like good for you, but they're more likely to watch you if you're further down south. So he said all that and it turned out to be true. Against uh, against the champions as well at the time. Wow. I mean, that that's the game as well, isn't it, where Asamo Jan scores and, and and is kind of doing a dance celebration and Zenden yes. tries to join and I think yes. thinks, yeah. fuck it. That's and speaking exactly of right. fuck it, I mean, that goal is the most fuck it it looks like anyway. It looks like you just get it and think, why not? I'll, yeah. I'll give this a go. As you say, you're not close. Is that what's going through your head? Because it very much looks like it. It kind of, yeah. Because like the way football goes, if you've got time on the ball and space in front of you, you kind of like get encouraged to go into it. Like mm. for as weird as the goal looks, it would look even more weird if I just panicked and turned around and said, oh, somebody <laughs> else take this further back. So I start to go forward. And, I, you know, throughout my career, like people I played with, they know I can dribble past people. So they kind of just stand there, put their hands up and just let it be. Mm. So I started, I think Bosinga was the first one. He didn't really fancy it. And then there were, there were a couple of little moves in there. And then before you know it, I was, I was clean through one-on-one at Stamford Bridge. So the best thing to do is use your left foot and put it in the bottom corner. I guess that's, <laughs> that's easy as that, yeah? We all know this. Yeah, yeah um, of course, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it's nice to know that you, you're blaming your celebration on tiredness. I mean, oh. my impression is you just didn't know what to do, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> you're tired. No, no, tiredness. Trust me, it's tiredness. I always I always thought I had an idea of like goals, goal celebrations, but I never scored when I thought I was going to. But in this <laughs> particular instance, I was just I was just way too tired. I promise you that. Okay, well, I hope we haven't peaked for this episode already because that's um, a wonderful insight into the dressing room at Sunderland in 2010 at the very least. This is Meza Harland Dix with Nader Manua. You're here to tell us about your fascinations and irritations of modern football kick us off with your first one if you, if you would so this is a this is a fascination something that I love myself and I think lots of players would, would share the sentiment I believe and there's some joy that comes from silencing an away crowd okay like even though say we've just seen in this last year empty stadiums and stuff and players not loving it fans hating it as well as an away team if you go out there and you perform well and you frustrate the opposition and it frustrates the crowd it's, there's like a beautiful silence you can hear, which is credit to how well you're playing. Okay. It's the only time like you, you're not getting the, you know, the fee- the feedback is silence and you love it. You know, usually you do make a tackle here. Yeah, you'll score a goal here. Yeah. But you're doing, you're controlling the game and you can hear, you can almost hear the broken murmurings of the crowd. Like, oh, no, no. <laughs> and then nothing, you know what I mean? And you can feel like that affects the opposition because they know they don't have the support, which is usually their 12th man. So there's a real joy in terms of having that feeling away from home because you know it's been a good performance. And it's unquestionably a thing that a manager would ask a team to try and do. Like this is this is this is not just a you know a genuine cliche among commentators. This is a thing that players would be aiming for. Yeah, you can. There are certain crowds where if you offer them any level of encouragement, you know it's going to be a lot harder for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's the sort of. Like, don't get me wrong, there's certain places where they sing regardless anyway, but it's not as hostile as, say, when the team's doing well. But when you look back at this last year, as I say, and there were no fans in there, the reality of what football is really kicked in because 
look at the teams you support. If your team has a corner kick, you get excited. Yeah. But the fact is, it's just a corner kick. And when there were no fans in the stadium, you can just hear that it's just a corner kick. But when you're the away team and you're hearing 10, 20, 30,000 people screaming because it's a corner kick, there's a sense of anticipation which you can't ignore, even though the reality is nothing's going to happen. But so that type of stuff, it affects, your, it affects your mind, it affects the way that you're playing the game. So to be able to keep them quiet, like that's, that's it. And the manager would say, don't encourage them. And that means don't be taking chances when you don't need to, don't mess about with this, be clinical, all that stuff. And, you know, these are hallmarks of good away performance anyway. But the moment you offer a team encouragement and the crowd get going, like you can feel everything start going against you. And even though referees will say they're impartial, like it's very hard to continually think that, you know, you're being fair when maybe 50,000 people are telling you otherwise. You know, at some point, it's going to get into your mind, isn't it? Imagining Steve Bruce, saying, especially in London, where there are going to be so many people <laughs> there. You, you, you know, it's got, got to keep them quiet. But it's interesting as well, you're talking about, because I think when I first heard you saying that, I was imagining that moment of when you score and mm. science and opposition. But you're talking more generally that kind yeah. of um, subduing Grinding them. Grinding them down. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly yeah. yeah, Like disappoint them. You know, they, they're coming to watch their team <laughs> Ruin win. their day. Yeah, literally. That's the, that's the whole point of you being there. I think in some ways, it's probably the only time like people who don't play as a defender get to feel what it's like to kind of be a defender like make it horrible like if you're like for me people and I don't understand why people don't all just hate defenders and goalkeepers because if we all have a great game there's a chance there might be no goals scored yeah. and football yeah. isn't a sport which we invest in to just see no goals being scored but that feeling there of coming and spoiling it is the similarity I'd say would be say Man City against Man United a couple of weeks ago at Old Trafford the way that they could mm. and that's a very specific example because you know they're the best at it but United never looked like they were in the game their fans almost felt like they're disappointed. You can try and cheer and bring something on, but there's no momentum. Like to be able to stifle momentum of a home team is like, it, it's joyous because you can see the misery on and off the field and it, <laughs> and it really feels great. Now we're getting going. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, it's just a great extension of the cliche, actually. The idea that, um, you know, a, a team would sit out for the first 20 minutes to quiet in the crowd, but no, yeah. no, no, go and ruin their day. This yeah. is wonderful. Yeah, Literally, just... literally yeah, that's, that's what it is. Like okay. football, you know, you can be trying to be really expansive, continually play out from the back and so on and so forth. But there's a certain element of the game which most teams adhere, adhere to whereby they try and be extra cautious at the start of a half and at the end of a half. And that extra cautiousness is in a way whereby you can still, you can be in a game and, you know, not have given them anything to hold on to. A home team scoring an early goal. So, oh, it's a fiesta. It's the best day ever. You know what I mean? <laughs> but 15, 20 minutes of frustration and them not really getting many opportunities or anything like that. Like it breaks their rhythm on and off the field. And as I say, that's a joy for me. Well, this, this is great from a defender's perspective about how to silence a crowd kind of sort of <laughs> over the course of 20 minutes. But Charlie, you know, the only real way to, to get a crowd to shut up straight away is to score against them. Mm. Um now I found I found kind of three different um, subgenres of the crowd silencing goal. Let's kick off with this one. This is from Darren Leithley. He says uh, Gary McAllister for Leeds against Rangers in 1992. No away fans, well not officially, and it was only a minute or so into the game. Now this is a very very straightforward crowd silencer just to set the t- <laughs> set the tone straight away. That Leeds have performed well. Strachan knocking it in. Fairclough have gone in there, and a brilliant start for Leeds. Gary McAllister. Silencing the Ibrox crowd in the most effective way. <laughs> Brian Moore just confirming indeed that the crowd was silenced there. But um, that was a pro- proper pin drop of a silence, Charlie. Like, you, yeah. you, you, you're not going to get better than that. That was eerie. I guess the only risk with that is you might anger the crowd. It's less the um, sort of subduing. Like in the moment you're silencing them, but you worry, oh, yeah. is that going to get them angry? Is yeah, that going to get them up for it? Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting you say that because... Uh, 
Nadim, this is one for you. I'm going to play this clip in full just to just appreciate it in all its glory. And given the dramatic irony here, we kind of know what's going to happen, but that <laughs> kind of makes it even better. This, okay. is, um, this is from the Sheffield Derby in 2017. Sheffield Wednesday had just come back from 2-0 down, but uh, the Wednesday fans thoroughly enjoying it. But unfortunately, within 38 seconds, it all fell apart. <laughs> Absolutely loving it to the point where it almost feels like you're asking for trouble. <laughs> this is the carnival atmosphere. Yeah. Well, I have to say, underneath my feet, it is moving. Oh, Duffy has got there for Sheffield United. Inside and outside he goes. That's a stunning goal. How on earth did he manage that? Extraordinary stuff! Now the um, the uh, the good thing about this one, Adam, is, is it wasn't just the goal that silenced the crowd and completely ruined uh, their afternoon. It was um, this was kind of almost like a pre-silencer. They saw that they saw Duffy get into a very good position. They thought, mm-hmm. "Oh no, yeah. what have we just been doing for the last yeah. thirty-eight seconds? Our yeah. lives are finished." It's that it's that sort of nagging doubt in the back of every fan's mind that something <laughs> terrible is about to happen to their team. You know, that's, but it's, oh, it's great. Everything's great. Everything's great. But wait, this feels too great. This feels too great. Something bad is about to happen. Yeah. Those ones as well. Like that's, that's, yeah, that's a great feeling to be able to just like, just, just take it easy, guys. Take it easy. Don't relax, relax. <laughs> it's relax. like the, when fans start olaying every pass, which I hate. And I was like, stop doing that. It's just going to anger the opponents and they're going to score. Like, <laughs> never, ever do that. Don't agree. Don't agree. It, 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 it results in a um, much lengthier spell of possession than you ever could have hoped for. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely convinced by this. I feel like proper analysts should get into this because uh, olays really do help. This is the third example. This is absolutely wonderful. This is from Tuesday night, in fact. Kevin De Bruyne against Wales in Cardiff. Um, a real three-parter here, Charlie. Um, in fact, I'm not even going to explain it. I'm just going to let you enjoy it. The Catalan. He's got his cross in. Allen sticks out a toe, takes it off De Bruyne. Bitzel shot. Now De Bruyne! Brilliance from De Bruyne. 12 minutes on the clock and the Belgian captain makes the breakthrough. <laughs> 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 now, now, Nadam, first of all, the way when De Bruyne air kicks his first attempt, perfectly acceptable. We have no complaints about this. We can't, you can't, you can't reverse engineer this situation. It's perfectly acceptable to weigh when Kevin De Bruyne produces an air kick on the edge of the area. No, yeah. no complaints there. None, none whatsoever. Now that that makes total sense. Yeah, good. And Charlie, it all begins to unravel after that. Um, <laughs> but it, it isn't just a, it isn't just a silencing. It's kind of a sort of gentle parachuting down from from. Ridicule yeah. to oh shit! It feels like pricking a balloon. It's just, the, the, you can just feel the air sort of coming out of the stadium. I, you could, audibly goes down. It's absolutely wonderful, and it then yeah. goes back up again with the boo. Mm. Um, it really is a work of art. I'm, I'm I love it. Absolutely love it. That again, I I I'm so paranoid as a fan. I always worry with things like that that you're just going to anger someone like De Bruyne. Even though you you, you have to do it, you want to celebrate those moments. That's Definitely. What, that Schadenfreude is what being fans all about. But yeah. you do have that nagging doubt, and it's just to see it played out that quickly. Yeah, literally joy, sadness, and anger in the space of about five seconds. I know like, that's the incredible. best thing of all. Yeah, yeah. Sure. we 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 were talking about this the other day in relation to Harry Maguire and his slightly. He, he sort of did everything at once. He did a kind of 
cupping his his fingers to his ears, saying like, "I can hear you." Then put his fingers in his ears. What was your go to choice, Nedim? If if you'd scored a goal to silence a crowd, are you shushing them? Are you fingers in your ears? Are you cupping your ears? Um, I think I was uh, <laughs> I was a copper. I think. I was a copper. Yeah. But there's um, the quote. That's it. That's the quote yeah. of the episode. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I was an ear copper. I was an ear copper. Let's get it out there. But, I knew yeah. it. I knew you were a copper. Yeah, but in fairness, I didn't do it to a crowd. I did it to one of my, well, to be specific, I did it to Roberto Mancini when I scored a goal. Oh, no. Because he'd been he'd been in a bit of a nightmare for the whole playing staff and I scored mm. and I was just gave it a little, little one of those nice. as I was walking back. Without looking him in the eye, obviously, because, you know, I'd have come straight off the field. Yeah. But yeah, it was it's an indirect directed at you, if that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, great start, solid start. Uh, we silenced the crowd already. Um, tell us about your second fascination of football, please. The second one, which I was on the right side of probably just about more times than not, okay. was winning in the last minute. Oh, lovely. And the reason I say this is because it's not always down to performance, but that high, like an early goal is great, but you still got the whole game to pan out. But scoring as the clock is about to just expire and the game to be done and there's nothing that the opposition can do. Like you'll you'll very rarely, if at all, not see everybody lose their minds to a goal like that. Any other point throughout the game, you, there's some level of happiness. But the last minute winner, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, what a feeling that is. We were all accustomed to kind of the ebb and flow of a football game, Nadim. But last minute winners are just football boiled down to a moment. So when yes. you're in a, if, as an attacking side, you've got to nail absolutely everything that you're doing. That cross, that pass out to the wing has got to be right. The cross yeah. into the middle has got to be right. The finish has got to be right. And only afterwards do you kind of realise there are so many things that could have gone wrong there. As, yeah. as a player, do you kind of appreciate that? Yeah, certainly. I certainly do. But I think um, some of that is to do with the fact that there are certain players on a field who you have sometimes where you feel confident that you're always in a game. I think when you look at the teams who are up near the top, they always have a belief that they can do something. doesn't matter whether they're one down, two down, three down. If there's still time left, they've got enough quality to be able to do it. And I've been on the other side of that where <laughs> when I was at Man City, there was a year where we didn't score a goal at home from February through to the end of the season. <laughs> so I didn't, I never expected a last minute winner at that point. So, <laughs> you know, but then to be on the other side of it, like, it's great because you can keep pushing. And, and I, I would always know as a defender, I've just got to do everything I can to make sure the opposition don't score. Do everything, do everything, do everything. And then we have a chance, maybe something will happen. And that hope, that hope is is terrific. And when it comes out and they score, oh, mate, it's what a feeling that is. Like, it's nearly bringing you to tears. It's like, that's, <laughs> it's such it's such a nice feeling. And, you know, you celebrate goals like that yourselves. They're absolutely incredible. As, as a fan, we, we they're often even better if you haven't deserved to win the game. Yeah, do, yeah. do you feel that as a player? Yeah. Listen, there was a year with QPR 2014-15 where we were in the Premier League <laughs> and we only did it because Bobby Zamora scored in the last minute at Wembley when we were playing against Derby who outplayed us on the day and we were down to 10 men. He scored and took us to the Premier League and I was very fortunate because I was on the halfway line and I saw every single, my view was of every single one of our fans as the ball got slammed into the top corner literally in the last minute after we've been battered for the last hour <laughs> and the reward is a place in the Premier League like mm. we did not deserve that Apart from, well, we deserve, what we worked hard. How much credit, do you, what do you deserve for working hard? I don't know, you know, that's subjective. Mm. But to score that goal and to have that moment, and, you know, that's a 40, that was a 49th game that season. 
And to be able to like gain promotion with the last kick basically of the whole year, is, it was absolutely incredible. Now you say you've been on the kind of receiving end of this, um, yeah. most famously, and this was it's kind of inevitable that this was going to come up, but I, I am fascinated by your role in it. Uh, this on, was Sergio Aguero's goal for Manchester City okay. in 2012 against QPR. Now there, are so, there were obviously so many layers to that goal for you personally, yep. a former Manchester City player, mm-hmm. um, playing for a team who could have been relegated that day and were also protagonists in a title race situation as well. So there's a lot going on for you at that yep. moment. But I reckon, you know, you look at that goal, and there's, as I said a moment ago, there are so many moving parts of that goal for the attacking team. For, but yep. defensively, I reckon you come out of it pretty well. You yeah. think you're close to Zeko? Well, <laughs> yeah. what more can you do? I, I, um, so let me give you a full context on this. Yeah. So that goal started with me giving, I was the last player for QPR to touch the ball. I threw the ball oh. to Man City, basically, to start oh. their attack. Okay, which was awkward. And Mm -hmm. it was in the last minute of the game, obviously. And I could have walked to the ball. But because of where I was, I did like a little tiny canter. You know, not too heavy. Crossing the road, like pretending. Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) Yeah, like, um, oh, gosh, I might get killed by this guy. You know, one of those ones. (laughs) Yeah. So I put more effort in because of my emotion there. And then, as I say, we lost the ball and they went and scored. But the goal before, Zeko was my man and he scored the header. And to talk about last minute goals as well. The week before, the only reason we stayed up for QPR is because we scored a goal in the last minute and it was Gibral Cissé at home. So that's the goal that kept us up, which meant that the City game in the end didn't mean anything. But yeah, that goal there, the Sergio Aguero one, I was so caught up in the emotion of everything. I didn't even know he scored the goal. I just know he conceded. I thought I thought we were down. I had no idea who scored. And just think, it seems nuts now, considering the announcers saying, goal scored by whoever and people mm-hmm. singing his name. I was so phased out by thinking we've just been relegated and then the high of like, oh my God, we're staying up. Like if there were 10 more minutes to go in that game, I don't think I would have moved. I would have just stood there. You just let, let time pass. Yeah, I, was, I thought we were done. I yeah. thought we were done. And I thought this is going to be my fault, as I say, because I was the last person to touch it. So mm. that's obviously the most iconic last minute goal, I'd say, in Premier League history. But it's, what what moment that was. It's a perfect case study for this. Before we get stuck into, we, we have some of our suggestions from our listeners about what they think a last minute goal should look like. At the, at the top of their head, if you think of last minute goal, what do they look like? But before we do that, Charlie, some very important information here. Um, you may or may not be aware that the Wikipedia page for last minute goal is an epic undertaking. 13,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'd expect um, nothing less. Yeah, I know, but sad news to report. It has not been updated since April 2021. Oh, it's almost dear. like they've gone. Do you know what? I think we've. I think we've nailed <laughs> we've it. We've conquered now. it. I think we got oh, it. But yeah, you go into the history of that page, and there's lots of you know. Well, where's the reference for this? Where's the source? I was like, come on! <laughs> How difficult can it be? Anyway, uh, but yeah, I've, I thought people should know the current state of the Wikipedia page for last minute goal. So okay, so we asked our listeners. Off the top of the head, what should a last-minute goal look like? Charlie, I'll offer you this one first. Ross FJ says a last-minute winner should have nearly all the players inside the box, a scramble from a corner or a set-piece, and a toe-poked finish, or someone smashing it in from the edge of the box. So there has to be an element of chaos about it. Is that fair to say? Mm. Yeah, I think it's really important with a last-minute goal. What what often happens is defenders lose their composure a bit because it, you're so close to seeing something out, like seeing out, you know, you're getting the point you really wanted or something. So often you'll see defenders making quite odd decisions like flying out to the ball and this sort of thing and so then there might be a moment conversely of composure from an attacking player like you were saying how everything needs to be right so there might be like a slight dummy or that sort of thing or a slight delay of a pass that's crucial um and then yet a fit i mean ideally you want it to be that kind of satisfying finish a real like smash into the top corner with anger because it's so it feels it's so important that it's not a time for 
you know, like a dink or something would seem yeah, quite weird. Yeah, I think yeah. I, in, nothing, in your nothing m- elegant should happen. Yeah, exactly. Y- y- yeah. You want a yeah a, a smack in the top corner. Should be a back corner. post affair, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Do you know uh, what? This has made me realise as well. Like I had so many stresses as a defender, and lots of defenders have these, especially towards the end of a game. Because as a defender or defensive-minded player, you're thinking like we don't. Last minute, we're thinking we don't concede. But the attackers are thinking we should go and score. Mm. So when your team scores, that's great. But when your team's defending, you see your attackers aren't running back because they're now overcommitting to try and score. <laughs> that then leads to this thing where all of a sudden, for defenders, like the stuff all over the place. Like, <laughs> yeah. like how? I, like that's when you start making these rash decisions because the structure's yeah. not there anymore. It's yeah, completely yeah. gone. And it's, you left and your own thoughts, and exactly. that's when it all goes wrong. And even yeah, exactly. And even like say, ask yourself this question: When people saw like Allison score ahead of last season and so on, and when goalkeepers come up, mm. you spend a whole week a whole season or whatever working on set pieces this guy goes here that guy goes there you mark this person you mark that person all of a sudden there's a goalkeeper standing in the box like what are you supposed to do at this stage like what what would you do should have practiced it in training as far as i'm concerned but eddie how does it no eddie how eddie how oh, definitely gosh. does it it's, it's it's weird like when fo- football can get really weird sometimes where all of a sudden you're having to make decisions on the fly about things but you have no idea what's going to happen next so it's always just a case of i think this is the lesser of two evils i'm going to do this but unfortunately sometimes like you end up being punished and that's just the nature of it i guess let's hear about your third love of football so the third one has come into my mind more so in the last year because i've been retired basically a year to the day now yeah and it's and I've played not I've not played eleven asides as such, but I've played a lot of five aside, six aside, and so mm-hmm. on. And I think what I love is the fact that it's a game for everyone, because I and, my, and lots of others. When you're involved in say academy football, then the pro ranks, you never really get a chance to see the other side of it or to be a part of it because you're never allowed to do it. Like you see, you see viral things on the internet and stuff. We never really get involved. But I've gotten involved over this last year, and obviously the standard and stuff's different. Mm-hmm. But some of the highs and lows that you get from training and so on, like I see it with people. I'm seeing people like I played in a tournament on the on Saturday, and firstly, the amount of pre- I felt more pressure in the semi final and the final of the tournament than I probably felt in the last two years of my career. It was really? nuts, yeah, because everyone was expecting us to win, yeah, mm. because it was me and one other guy who'd played professionally, so everyone okay, was expecting okay. us to win. I've got an idea and, of it now. And it got to a point where they were rooting against us from the sidelines and stuff. Mm. And they scored and we went 1-0 down. The celebration was like as big as of like, in terms of joy as I saw from teams who were doing it professionally. I thought, (laughs) okay, okay, here we are. And I was annoyed because it meant that I went back to my mindset as if I was being paid to play football again. Mm. I was like, come on, five minutes, organize this, do that. God, I was like, what am I doing? I was like, what am I doing? Like, I did not retire to live this life again. Exactly, you can't switch it off. But Well, I I did until that point, until it got serious. But the fact that, as I say, I've gotten a chance to get a taste of it and to see the joy that it brings people. And, you Mm. know, like, I'm enjoying being a part of it, even though, like, it's a completely different challenge. Mm. Enjoy it, because that's the beauty of football. Whatever you see on a Saturday on TV, in theory, you could replicate that on a Sunday on a field somewhere. Interesting. Well, wow. that's, that's that is one of the things which I find most beautiful about it. I, I broadly admire the sentiment here, Charlie. I, and I mean, it, it's football at its very purest. The idea that we, you know we can enjoy it at any level, but it did get me thinking about the kind of tiny things we do at our humble amateur level that make us feel like pros, that make us feel like we're living out the life of a Premier League footballer. Um, we had some wonderful <laughs> examples here. Actually, I want to start with this one. Uh, I went to see Fulham women the other day playing the FA Cup and uh, they were playing at Fulham's training ground. So I had to, so I, so I drove into the training ground, watched the game, drove out again. And I have to say, the thrill of driving in and out of a professional club's <laughs> training ground, I felt, I, I, 
I have to say, despite the fact I was driving a Nissan Note, I felt like I was a thirty-two million pound deadline day signing. <laughs> yeah, did, I was going to say, did you stop and wind the window down to sort of no, no one in particular? No, I don't know why I did this, but what I did do I was kind of sort of lean forward in my chair over the steering wheel. <laughs> like, this is how Premier League footballers drive, right? This is how it's done. Honestly, I felt like a million dollars. So, um, so I'll start you off with that, Charlie. How about you? What, what little kind of habits do you have in Sunday League that make you feel like you've really, really made it? Well, for me, this this dates back all the way to primary school age. I remember I was so impressionable that I scored in a you know, against the team. Obviously, there's no one in the crowd, and I started shushing them, shushing a kind of imaginary crowd that didn't exist, as yeah. if I'd been getting pelters all game, and, and now had silenced awful. them. So that you know, that's one of my the kind mm. of d- dreaming that you know people actually care about what you're doing. Mm. That there is that there is a crowd that you've uh, you've proved wrong in some way. Um, Nadim, this is from Richard Easterbrook. Um, one of the lesser discussed skills of professional football, I think, um, this applies to goalkeepers and maybe defenders too, depending on the situation. It says, retrieving the ball from behind the goal and then throwing it with just enough backspin so that it lands perfectly behind the <laughs> six-yard line, ready for a goal kick. Only managed it once. Do they, I mean, do they teach this? Do they teach this? You know, no, well, like the very youth team. How to spin um, a ball perfectly. I think the, so let's, let's, let me separate football now let me split it into there are outfielders and there are goalkeepers yeah? yeah goalkeepers are weird and they spend a lot of time together doing really weird quirky things <laughs> so that there i don't think they'd necessarily be taught how to do it but for the reps and stuff that they do because they essentially train by themselves for the majority mm. of most training sessions mm. and the stuff they're doing is weird so like it wouldn't surprise me if they're like oh look at the way i can spin the ball this way or the way i can spin the ball that way or kick the goal before Ex- they take goal kick yeah, oh, or, yeah. to be fair i used to do that when i was playing some when i was playing Sunday <laughs> league yeah because you know you got to make sure there's no mud in your studs otherwise yeah, it doesn't go as like far does it yeah but yeah keepers keepers are weird that's that's the bottom line keepers are oh, weird yeah. So, yeah. I'm disappointed that you think this is a goalkeeper only thing. If you know, if, you, if you're chasing a last minute winner and you've got a free kick, oh, keep in your own half, and the last uh, minute, that backspin could save you yeah. precious milliseconds. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but to if be I fair, with 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 a, with a backspin, you just people just tend to cheat now anyway. You just roll it further and further forward. You don't really want it to spin back. It's just like it's more just like put it as far forward as possible. Now <laughs> you have to run after it and chase it and then put it back again, which would be just you know, quite embarrassing if anything. Mm. Charlie Molyneux Musings says positioning the wall at a free kick with one player turned towards the keeper. The keeper lined up with a post shifting you to the nth degree always feels very pro i mean that's it's at sunday league level it's just playing out a fantasy isn't it (laughs) yeah i I like the with a wall what you get sunday leagues oh and you're in a wall is we jumping boys and that that decision you know that's the kind of height of the sophistication really on the wall are we all jumping are we not i mean who knows whether they'll get in the guy to lie down that feels like that feels like quite a good self-important sunday league step to take we are we cannot be far away we probably reached the point where players are sending up to sunday league with mate in a straw so well that's you say this and it's it's so true but then the, the bit which i was alluding to as well was you know you're wearing the same boots as this guy yeah you've you've seen his tricks somewhere you've seen him take free kicks like you can believe that you are as good as this person, but you're not in the same environment. And I, and I see that. Like, I've played against it. I've played against guys who are coming in with me, some skills and whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, like, nobody's come at me with skills for 10 years. And now I'm playing amateur. And this is all you want to do? Like, this this isn't going to work. But that's their belief that it will because they've seen other people do it. And as a consequence, it must be successful. And yeah, I, like, in some ways, I love it. 
I remember true. as a kid, I and many of my friends would do that Be- when taking a free kick yeah, the Beckham yeah. thing that he did yeah. as if that's what made his free kicks really good oh yeah. I'm a two armour definitely a two armour <laughs> yeah those things like if I do that if I swing my arm then I'll oh, be I able see. to strike a ball like the that the windmill yeah the windmill yeah, exactly. oh, I see got mm. you okay mm. um, interstellar territory here uh, Charlie Max Rushton from Rival Ooh, Football here Podcast we Guardian Football Weekly says uh, taking it into the corner no better feeling um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> again that feels just that feels it's, it shouldn't be doing it in Sunday League it's too cynical behaviour, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I quite like that. Again, I like anything self-important. I just think is really funny, mm. and that to me that that makes it feel yeah a lot like there's a lot more at stake than there really is. And also, I'm just sure Sunday players would bore, would tire of that very quickly. They'd get bored. Mm. Because it takes quite a lot of patience and it is a really boring thing to do. Mm. I, I just don't think they'd really commit to that. Now, of course, taking the ball into the corner and protecting it, Nadim, is the attacking cousin of the defensive art of shepherding. Yes. Now, um, frankly, <laughs> the highlight of my entire life is being able to discuss with a Premier League defender the art of shepherding. Tell yes. us what, how satisfying is a shepherding? Oh, shepherding. What, what a moment that is. You know what I mean? You don't really get a ton of these as a defender, but when you can get it right and you get it right at home, ah, oh, the standing ovation, never seen anything like it. <laughs> The key bit is what's the pace of the ball as it's mm. going out towards the byline. Because you see those ones where the pace isn't isn't quite right, isn't quite right, and you're wrestling someone, but all of a sudden they can just whip round you. But if you if you if the pace is strong, you can look so alpha in that situation. No, <laughs> God, come with me. Come on, let's well, let's walk this out together. And the attacker's like having a go. No, come on, come on, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Round of applause. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. We're going to take a goal kick. Thank you. It's been it's been great entertaining you. The, the alpha thing there as well as the thing that they do of like chucking the ball back to the keeper as if say, yeah, what are you worried about? No <laughs> yeah, I've got this under control. Yeah. yeah. yeah but no also worries. with the alpha, that's what makes it players get into trouble because obviously you do have the option of thinking, oh shit, they're actually going to get there and clearing it. But mm. doing that is such a climb down because yeah. it's like I've wasted the last yeah. few seconds trying to hustle and I've actually made a big misjudgment. So it's like, oh, I really don't have to do that, but maybe yeah. I'm going to have to. Speaking of wasting as well, you might not notice this all the time, but as a defender, if you ever do something good and you're just out and just open play, mm. there are lots of defenders who then try and do something good again. And that's when things go wrong. Say you'll like intercept something, have a nice bit of play, break past someone and they try and play a diagonal ball, just kill yeah. them straight out of play and stuff like that. <laughs> You'd be amazed how often this sort of, this sense of like positive momentum is like, yes, yes, I'm on a roll here, I'm on a roll here. And then it's like, ah, this is why I play back here. Yeah, Aww. that's not, that's not going to Stay fly. in your lane. Exactly. I'd love to know what you did after that goal at Chelsea. The, 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 the precise next thing you did. I, oh, I want to rewatch God. the game, like an attempted bicycle kick. No, 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 no. I was, I was, well, let me, let me fill you in a little story, actually. So I went on a run like that once under Sven-Goran Eriksson. We were away at West Ham. I came on off the bench. We went, went on a run like that. Giovanni scored. It was 2-0. It's like five minutes to go in the game. Mm-hmm. And Craig Bellamy was playing left wing for West Ham. And I, again, I was shattered. One thing I'm noticing here, me dribbling gets me very tired. Very, very tired. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know Craig at that point because he hadn't played for City or anything. And he said to me, listen, uh, it's like a few minutes to go. If you, don't, um, if you don't try and run past me, I'm not going to try and run past you. And I was quite young at the time. I was like, ha, 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 ha. He's clearly, he's clearly joking. Man of his word. Five oh. minutes, at no point did he come anywhere near me. At no point did I run forward, which was the biggest blessing because I would not have been able to. So yeah, there's a sense of joy for you. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely little exchange. I quite enjoyed that. Charlie Ellis James says, I cross myself as I run onto the pitch despite not being a Catholic. Mm. And for two <laughs> glorious seconds, I'm in Serie A. Yes. <laughs> I, I've seen someone do that and have wanted to raise it with them, but didn't for fear that they may 
you know have an uns- you know be more religious than I realise or something. But yeah. I'm sure people are doing field. that, like Ellis James. Mm. I feel like I could be a uh, bend down, touch the grass, and kiss the. But then, if you do that on AstroTurf, does, is that the same? I mean, <laughs> we'll put those crumbs into your mouth. Yeah, yeah, carcinogenic rubber crumbs, just to get the feel for things. Uh, finally, for this one, Paul Redfern, Nedham, playing in a nil-nil feels like a pro moment. Mm, <laughs> that is so things. true. Yeah, nil, well, to be honest, I, I'll say I'm, maybe I'm a bit different. I like I hated nil-nils. Like, I'd rather my team won seven-six than like come off of a nil-nil because of a nil-nil, it's like. You can you can sense the disappointment amongst both sets of players, fans, everything. You step in the dressing room, you say, "Oh, well done with the clean sheet, you guys fought hard." But you know, you, you know, your manager would rather have seen a goal being scored than you just not conceding. You know this that, is don't not you? Not the defenders' union, manager. Nah, I, I'm the I'm, I'm of the I'm of the winners' union. Like Fair literally, enough. if, oh, no. if you are, <laughs> that's the if, second quote for the podcast. Yeah, if you if listen, I, I would have rather traded off some of the clean sheets I've had for yeah. like just have been on the being on the field knowing that you can score. It's different to being on the field thinking there's a good chance to get a clean sheet. Because with a clean sheet, you can come down to good play, but you need luck as well. Yep. Whereas for some people who score, like if you have them on the field, like you've got no worry. What's the score? What's the time? Oh, there's not a care in the world. As opposed to not having a goal threat. And it's like you've just conceded in the 75th minute. You might as well just call the game off because nothing's going to happen now. We're not going to do anything. Call it a day. This is where we're at. You know, And that is a horrible feeling to have, especially when it's week in, week out. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Welcome back to Mesut Highland Dicks with Nader Manoa. Uh, we've covered silencing an away crowd, the art of winning in the last minute, and the idea that football is for everyone, except at Sunday League when you're uh, directing a wall at free kick. Um, but yeah, a democratic thing nonetheless. Nader, let's move on to your hate of football, uh, if okay. that's not too strong a word. No, it's, um, it's, it's, it's perfectly right. It's okay, perfectly fine. acceptable. Good. Yeah. So um, being as somebody now who's retired and I've sort of stepped into the media world a little bit, not a lot, a little bit. One thing I hate is the sort of need for overreaction about everything. And that's made worse because that overreaction gets the most clicks and listens. So it feels like there's just an outraged fan base all the time of the Mm -hmm. game. And if you want to, you know, be heard by many, you have to join this realm of overreaction and I absolutely hate it because it feels like there's no sense of balance and understanding anymore. We've seen so many seasons. Like it's a 38-game league season in the Premier League, yet still come week two, people are like throwing things at the TV and saying this is a disgrace, that's a disgrace, and so on and so forth. Like you don't know what's going to happen. And we've seen this year in, year out. And I say it's not, it's, it's agony. It's agony trying to, because sometimes I feel like I'm very soft. Because I'm talking next to somebody who said this player is now objectively the worst player in the history of the world. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's September, so we'll see how the things how things go. 
and they're like, oh God, is that all you're going to offer? So yeah, I, I I hate the overreactions of, of like football, especially early in the early stages of a season. Okay, well, I, w- I want to split this into kind of two parts then. First of all, this the kind of the outrage aspect. Um, completely on board with this. I mean, it, it, it's kind of this this idea that 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 gets more attention by by being angry about a thing and overreacting to it. But the second part of it is that I feel like this is a bed we've all made for ourselves a little bit because endless football coverage requires an endless amount of reaction. Now, if, if you mm. take the emotional side out of it, it feels like we all, all of us, um, in the media and outside, feel like we have to react to football all the time. Mm. And and sometimes it just doesn't need to be reacted to. I'll take, for example, an England friendly, for example, in the mid-2000s, where there was nothing on the line and it didn't feel like there were any conclusions to draw. But we ha- we are obliged. All of us are obliged to react to it. So we're kind of all at fault, aren't we? Well, maybe, but which came first? Mm. Was, it, was it the case that the producers when 24 hour sports news first came in said this is what we're going to go with or was it like fans looking for that because i know that just fans and general stakeholders within football if something bad happens like they'll look for something bad i think that's just human nature but it doesn't mean that it always has to be accessible like with all due respect say i'm sure they're, they're overall a very good channel but i remember what it was like when i had friends who were playing for arsenal when the rise of arsenal fan tv was there and that rise seemed to come from outrage because their club wasn't performing you know, but they're fans of the club, so you think they'd want the best for the club as well. But instead, like Arsenal, they're a joke. It's not just Arsenal fans tuning in. It's like fans from everywhere tuning in to laugh at Arsenal and the outrage at this football club. You know, it doesn't, it didn't make sense to me. And the players, you know, they couldn't say anything about it and whatever. And I'm sure they were disappointed with how they were performing. But I don't know. That's what I'd love to know. I'd love to go back and figure out which came first. But then the reality of the situation is this is where we're at now. And that's not going to change. But thankfully, there are other mediums where you can have a platform to be able to have a more reasoned type approach to things but they're not, yes. not necessarily Welcome. always the biggest yeah, yeah. yeah they're not necessarily always the biggest platforms which is which is the thing which i think is the issue because i think if more people become educated to the reality of the game maybe they'll be able to enjoy it more instead of becoming angry about things which maybe don't you don't need to be angry about all the time yeah here's to, here's charlie here's you to can subscribe to the just, athletic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah here's to media platforms that celebrate the mundane aspects of football what a wonderful idea that would exactly, be um, exactly exactly charlie i mean is it idealistic to think that um you know joyful gleeful football coverage can't have the same effect as as sheer outrage well i think it can in some respects but the, the issue is and it's interesting nedim you talk about that the sort of early part of a season. So I remember talking to an old editor of mine and he said he hated the first few weeks of the season because there was an appetite. There's just as much appetite, if not more, for coverage. But you're being asked to draw conclusions on this tiny sample size of Mm. one game or two games. But it's really hard because, you know, fans do want that. And again, it's like you say, it's kind of chicken and egg. And and that goes both ways, that invariably a team wins their opening game 4-0, wins their second game maybe, and then you're... You're in the realms of, you know, they're amazing. Mm. This manager could do this one day. Their players, how they've done it, da 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 da. And, you're, and obviously, a part of you is like, it's two games. Mm. But, you know, I think there is that appetite, and you, you do almost get it both, kind of the negative, but then the positive. And and it's it's hard to have that middle ground when there's such an insatiable appetite for constant yeah. coverage and content. This even kind of extends to kind of pre-season friendlies now, Nadim. Like, mm. <laughs> I get this idea yeah. that, um, I mean, it must be the biggest disconnect between what the players are feeling, because obviously it's, it's a different priority for pre-season. You're just getting sharp and all that sort of stuff. And, and to what the reaction of the fans are, because, you know, they're desperate to see a team in action and win and improve and sign players and bed the players in. So it must be the biggest, like, distance between 
what actually matters, the preseason yeah. friendly. Like I think as a fan, just seeing your team win makes you feel like your team's doing pretty well. Yeah. But there's so much nuance that goes into any particular win and stuff like that. You might win three games in a row and have been terrible. Mm. And that could actually be alarming because you know that when your luck runs out, like you've not got the performance. I think at times, like there should be a greater thought at times, a greater thought on performance because that's a bigger indicator than result overall over a larger sample size. But we don't really live in a society where that is something which will be discussed because everything is about the result. Because there've been times where I've, my team has won a game one nil and we've been awful, like as bad as they come, but then we'll leave and be like, oh, you guys were heroes. You kept a clean sheet. Defensively, mm. you were rocks, all this stuff. And we were absolutely crap. Sign of champions. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were crap, got away with murder. You know what I mean? So as we leave that stadium, there are two emotions. We're sort of sensing we got away with it. And the opposition are like disappointed, but they're disappointed because they deserved more. And that feeling of deserving more is something which kind of inspire you for the next one. Whereas for us going out there again, if we concede early or whatever in the next game, it's like, well, what do we fall back on now? Because we didn't have performance last week. It doesn't look like we're going to have it this week. Sounds to me like you're just advocating for the um, for the abolition of all post-match punditry completely, which leads <laughs> Burn it nicely... Down. Burn it us. down, yes. Burn yeah. it down. This leads us nicely into your second hatred of football. So this one, I'm going to try my best not to name any names here. Fine, we will. Uh, okay, go for it. <laughs> and I think what it is, it's sometimes it's pundits that sort of forget what it was like to have been a player. Um, like, they're the trusted voices... And I don't think, I think there are some good pundits out there and I think there are some indifferent to bad ones. And some of the stuff that they say based on their platform goes a lot further than it should do. And I know that there are lots of players playing in the game who don't respect certain pundits because of the things that they say. Because mm -hmm. what they're saying just isn't the reality of the situation. But how could that be the case when they've spent 10, 15, 20 years being in that setup? Like, for example... Until I went to QPR, I never knew um, like why people celebrated finishing 17th in the Premier League. And then with QPR, finish 17th in the Premier League. And you understand the context that it provides for a team. People are keeping their salaries. People are keeping their jobs. You get the right to play in said stadiums all, ar like all around the country for another year. You've earned the right to stay in the Premier League. It's not about 17th. It's about earning the right to stay in the Premier League. But in times gone by, this guy's like, oh, look at them. They're a disgrace. They're doing this. They're doing that. Look at this. They're a disgrace. Or even other things like if, a, if as a player, you know, you can be a maverick, but a maverick tends not to be consistent. You need people who are going to pull in the same direction and you put all your trust into your manager and the tactics and the coaching staff and say, this is what we're going to try and do. And we're going to try our best, play for each other and try and put these tactics in play to see if they'll work. So if a manager says, we're going to go for a low block today, and you go on a low block and everybody's doing it, you might be on TV, and it's a big game, you might be on TV getting criticised by a pundit for saying why they're not going out and pressing. You can see they've got no heart and no desire, but they're all doing the same thing. So surely you should be able to clock on and think, well, that's <coughs> what they're being asked to do. And that so, shows a good team mate and player for a manager now. In that particular example, is, is this kind of, what's the approach for the pundit then? Is this just kind of a willful misunderstanding or is it that they, they, don't, they, they don't want to discuss this with, um, the viewers because they'll think it'd be boring so they kind of just go down this kind of cartoonish route I think I think for some for some it's almost as if like they're playing football manager in their minds based on everything that they see and they think this is the best way that this team can play to win something or to win this particular game and if a team isn't doing that they're like well why would you not play him here why would you not do this why would you not do that but then they had the prior context because they were working like 
we see a team play 90 minutes a week, but they're training for five days in that week before the 90 minutes. And that's where old relationships and ideas and stuff comes from. But those guys in disregarding that and making it seem like, wow, why is this player on the left wing? Like, where, why is he putting there? Well, they've just spent five days putting him there working on it. And it's for a reason. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. provide, say that this is what it is. Like, not every game plan will work, but it's a foundation. And if you can find people that all try and do it together, you'll see whether it can be successful. But then instead, they're like, well, why are they doing this? This is unbelievable. Like, why are they doing that? What's he thinking? Like, what's this? Like, they're doing it together. They win together. They lose together. And that's a hallmark of a good teammate because they will still try their hardest. But just because it doesn't suit your eye doesn't mean that's not that they're not doing the right thing. Like, listen to their manager. What their manager says about them should carry more weight than what you say about them. But very rarely does that end up being the case. Okay. As a player, it must be. It must be. There must be a big difference then between when you're hearing it from former players or whatever, like who you say should know better. That's one thing. And then there must be a lot of people who you're just like, well, they don't have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, they must that must carry different frustrations in a way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But it tends to be that the biggest platforms tend to have ex players on. Yeah. You know, sure. some of the other ones, they can people can express their opinions, react to stuff and so on, and they can have their sort of like social following and all that. But like if somebody is talking about what it is like to have played as a professional and so they are recognized as so, like there's a reason why say BT Sport, have the biggest names or whatever, like because they think that's going to be what's going to help them grow and make them more legitimate and be heard by a wider audience because it's coming from the mouth of a Premier League, Champions League and such and such winner. Like They're the definition of football. But if they're missing something, it makes me wonder sometimes, Like, did they think like this as players or are they doing this now just in the mm. media side? Because if they thought like this as players, and that's deeply alarming, like I heard, I'm not going to name names here, but there was someone who I know who was, when talking about uh, Manchester United last year, they said, when United have the ball, whoever's on the field, they take extra touches so they can try and look to see where Bruno Fernandes is, wherever he is, to try and get him the ball. But when Van der Beek's there, you can see they're not looking for him and they don't trust him, so they don't want to play him the ball. So I'm thinking, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. I thought back to my career, thought about training, games, everything. And the ball would always be passed to the right person in the right place, regardless Mm. of whoever it is. Because if you're choosing to not pass the ball to somebody, then you're essentially going against the manager who selected the team of indivi- the team of individuals who are going to go out there and be successful. But he said it, and he said it in a really serious way. And at the time, there's a lot of negative stuff about Van der Beek being, not being good enough and so on. And I thought, were there times in my career where I'd get the ball and I'd be like panicking, thinking, oh my God, where is player X on the field? I must give him the ball straight away. Like, no, there's not a thing. Like, there's not the flow of a game, but he said it said it in a serious manner, doubled down on it, and then we just moved on. I was like, well, nobody's pushed back against that. So I guess that's the consensus now. Like Everyone thinks like Van der Beek's not going to get the ball, but Fernandez is because, you know, uh, Juan Bissaka's now got the ball right back and he's seen, he's seen Bruno Fernandez in the toilet, so he's going to try and kick him the ball because that's the best place for him to get, <laughs> to get the ball. Like it's, it's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. I don't think we are being too harsh on pundits here, Charlie, but it did get me wondering about, uh, there are certain levels of, of TV punditry that... Uh, clearly are more demanding than others um, and and that maybe that brings out the worst in in some of the pundits but we asked our listeners what they thought the easiest football punditry gig of them all was Alex White says uh, the easiest punditry gig is being the pundit brought in with a link to a non-league side playing against a Premier League team in the FA Cup you mm. only have to have minimal knowledge about the club and what it means to the fans 
Um, yeah. So yeah, just being in a, brought in as a kind of the insider for the team who nobody else has heard of. That that seems like a pretty plum gig. Oh, what you mean? Because no one's ever going to call you up on yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. And, yes. and, and and even if you did only talk in generalities, that would be absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, Mark McKillen, Adam says. Possibly the ex-pro in the Sky Sports News studio reporting on a game that's already on Sky. They must be performing to the tiniest <laughs> audience of all. That must be the easiest one. Come yeah. on, do that at least. It's yeah, easy. No, no, it's, it's not about the fact it's easy. It's just, no, 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 of course. I've just, it, it's just not, it, it's not for me. Like the, in the summer, for example, there was, I was over in the USA and get, for ESPN and I was working on the Euros. Yeah. And the, the set was split in two. There was like a sofa bit, which was for the thoughtful discussion. Yeah. And I was on the stage bit. And they were kind of going back and forth. But at one stage, it was when England, it was the second game for England. And I heard this American guy, he started talking. He said, the best thing that I think they could do, England, is just drop Harry Kane, is what they said in the second game of the thing. And I was like, off, I was off the side of the set. Like, <laughs> ah, ah, I want to get into this. I want to get into this. Mm. But then... But he said something, someone else said something, went to the break, came back, next topic, we're out. And I was like, nah, I can't, I can't do this. I can't keep doing this. Like, it's too much. There's so many things which I'd love to just be able to like have a back and forth about, not necessarily because I disagree, but like greater conversation about certain things, you know, can actually paint a better picture, I think, of the game itself. But instead, you know, it's always the same people saying the same things. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're, you're a fairly low-key presence on social media. Um, yes. But um, that leads us nicely into your third hatred. Yes, it, it does. It does, my friend. It does. And that the thing that I hate as well right now is the role that social media plays within the pro ranks and with this media rank as well. Because it's nowadays it's all about the brand. It's not about you. It's about your brand. And that's not something that I buy, that I buy into. Because the experience that I want to have on social media is akin to the experience I used to have on like um, MySpace back in the day. Where it's the people that you know. They're the people you interact with. Like I want to just see my friends in a different spot. What but song now, did you have on your MySpace page? 
it was um, it was a song by Mr. Scruff. Um, I forget what it's called. I was so cool and like retro though. But um, <laughs> I remember top tens and all that stuff. But for me, I, I had an open social media account during my playing career mm. for about three months, and I realized at that point that like I don't really like being accessed by people that I don't know. Yeah. Because I was the two, it was two parts actually. I was when I was open on Twitter, I always felt like I had to say something. Yeah. I'm like, well, why do I have to say something? And then the other side of it is I could be sitting down and somebody's just saying something to me that's got nothing to do with anything. And I'm there having to read it. But then in the real world, if I'm sitting down on, a, on like a park bench, no one's going to come over, just express an opinion and then just proceed to leave. And then that's fine. Exactly. So I thought, well, no, this isn't for me. So when I, with my private social media, like that's what I'm about. I'm about real experiences. People are saying things which they know that like they can discuss with me in real life. And we can talk about things like me seeing their life, seeing whatever. And that's better. Whereas within the football side of it, like if you don't have tens of thousands of followers, like people said, oh, God, like, well, we can't sponsor you. We can't do this. We can't do that. You're not of value to us. And there are players who have tens of thousands of like followers and stuff who people have never seen them play football before, mm. but they keep seeing their highlight reels appear on their things. And then before games, it's like, right, big game this weekend. We're going to go out there and do blah, 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 up to this, hashtag whatever, blah. It's like, I'm like this is this is the weirdest, fakest place I've ever seen. It's just, <laughs> it's, just purely, it's just purely a marketplace. And then to go back to the punditry side of it, if you want to get tons of fans and interactions on social media, say something outrageous. Mm. Say something outrageous. That'll get them across. Then they'll keep coming across because then people expect you to be able to like say something outrageous again next week. So then it's like, are you real or are you just doing a bit every time you appear on TV? Like, yeah. who like who are you? And I think for some of these accounts, based on the way social media has gone through the years, like you don't fit, you don't see real people on there anymore. And I think that's a shame, which I, I, I have no interest in doing that. Actually, this idea of a kind of authenticity, kind of the idea of getting your personality across. Charlie, we, we're so used now, we're kind of accustomed to kind of the post-match tweets, the bland sentiments that may or may not be posted by the players themselves. And that, that's, that's fairly well established now. But... We're into kind of very surreal territory now when it comes to players as brands and vehicles for certain things. It probably reached ahead in the last couple of weeks with um, various players offering their NFTs. I'm going to pit together two of the most notable ones that I've spotted. This is Paul Pogba versus Michael Owen. Now, before I before we play the clip, I just want to say I'm not sure which one I prefer. Do I prefer a current footballer reading an absurd script but not really getting into it? Or do I prefer a retired footballer reading a really bland script but somehow managing to sound very excited about it? I am happy to announce you my partnering with a phenomenal project called Crypto Dragons. They set the world record by selling an NFT of 35 Ethereum for primary sale in less than 10 seconds. This is huge. Hello again, DeRacers. It's Michael here. Just wanted to let you guys know that we've been working really hard to bring an exclusive one-off collection of NFTs that will be launched from Manor House Stables. These horses that I've configured and named personally, of which some will be the exact replicas of my championship winning horses. This is your chance to own a piece of history in the form of an exclusive NFT. See you soon. Charlie, I've watched the Michael Owen one about 12 times now and i have struggled to actually listen to the words every single time it's it's a fascinatingly bland piece of content i found that with both of them or also with with pogba's that well more i just couldn't really understand like some of those the technical terms he was using uh, way over my head um yeah i mean that that's some some excellent stuff 
from from Michael Owen. But yeah, I mean, it's all it's all it's all baffling. I, d- I don't really know what what it is they're talking about. I'm looking forward to you launching your new NFT, Nedham. Yeah, yeah, you'll uh, you might die waiting, but please, yeah, I hope you look forward to it. I feel like there's there is a real opportunity for someone to be a bit more uh, themselves on social media or whatever. But uh, but the problem is there is such a risk that anything you do, just even slightly off-centre, is going to be jumped on and might, you know, become a news story and whatever. And then that's sort of the problem as well. Like, because a decade ago or whatever, there were people on Twitter and you saw a bit of their personality, but now you just think it's not worth it. It's not worth the hassle for them. But that very point, point to me, completely undermines what Gary Neville said recently. He was very vocal about this. He said that players need to be more authentic on social media. They need to, the keys need to be handed back to their, to them for their social media accounts. And as Charlie says, Nedham, this just it just isn't worth it. It's just not no. workable, is no, it? No. For, for most players, I'd say. No, the the stress and the backlash that can come from someone either <coughs> exactly. misinterpreting or disagreeing with something you say is just not worth it. Like when I, I had an open Twitter account for two months when I was playing. And like immediately I'm seeing people following me. It's like this fan, that fan, that fan, newspaper. This fan, that fan, another newspaper, another news outlet. I'm thinking, well, why? I wonder why they're following me. Hmm, mm-hmm. This is this is interesting. Mm. So that sense of doom exists. So nobody's gonna be gonna go out there and like just do what they want. Like say Ben Foster having a YouTube channel expressing his opinions. He's the exception, not the rule. And I think he's in a position where he's doing so because he is older and he feels like he doesn't owe the game anything anymore. His path has been set and he is who he is. But try and find younger people doing that and watch how quickly they'll be worried about, say, them not being accepted by their footballing community. You know, it's, it's, you can't get, you can give people their keys back. But at this stage, like social media for me, it's just marketing. It's just a marketplace. You're selling, you're buying, you're either buying or you're selling and you're not really being yourself. And that's just the way that it is, I think. Uh, listener Rob Gilbert ends us with this point. He said, when Harry Redknapp tweeted about cryptocurrency, it's fair to say, the wall was very much broken. Um, I, mean, I mean, presumably, Harry was constantly banging on about crypto in the QPR dressing room circa yeah, 2015, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I remember it well because it was very, like, the, the times when I saw Harry, like, happy, and this is back then because he seems like he's changed a little bit. He wasn't really happy talking about football, but talk about horses. My goodness gracious me. So it's quite a leap to go from horses to NFTs because once, <laughs> you know what I mean, one seems very... Not for Michael Owen. Michael Owen's doing it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure, he, I'm sure he knows what's going on as well. But how old Harry? It must be 70, 75 now, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he's well up on his NFTs, yeah. He's probably yeah, no banging into it, yeah. No doubt. Probably, yeah, the least convincing social media presence <laughs> of all, Charlie, would you say? <laughs> well, the, the least convincing tie-up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, I think his, his general social media game is just the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Anyway, um, Nadim, you've been absolutely sensational. Thanks, thanks for joining Football Clichés today. <laughs> It was a um, pleasure. I feel like you got a lot off your chest. Like many uh, of our guests. Not, not enough. Not no. enough. I, <laughs> I got some off, but not enough. No, never enough time. But there's plenty more with this, and I'm sure I'll share it in the future. Um, yes, yeah, so what, what have we covered? We've covered silencing in a way crowd. We've covered last minute winners. Bringing the game to the masses that everyone can enjoy. That was a lovely little sentiment. Nah, uh, th- then it all just got very mean after that. Um, yes. Yeah. You've decried 90% of football content. That was That's fine with us. It wasn't 100% though. It wasn't 100%. <laughs> yeah. There you go. As long as we cornered the rest, that's fine. We've established that you have absolutely no desire to join the uh, frothing punditry masses. Nope. Good. No. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing where your where your uh, Twitter brand develops from here. At least. Oh, can I can I? Sorry to just finish this off. Yeah, one of the the weirdest points in my life was so I, I have a book that's coming out in March, mm-hmm. which I didn't want to do at the start, but I was convinced to do, and we've been doing it, and it's not finished yet. But 
last week there was a tweet that came out announcing the book was coming yeah. out and i had to go on my public twitter account to retweet a book about myself <laughs> and i had to promote that so me that's tried to keep my life very much to myself for its entirety is now on an open account on Twitter saying everybody, hey, I've got a story and I think you should read it. That was one of the weirdest moments of my life. And like, it's going to be very weird for the next year, I think. Very, I'll do it for weird. you then. Kicking back everybody out <laughs> in May 2022. It's going to be stunning. Um, he's just too modest to say it for himself. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you very much. Good to see you guys. And uh, cheers, Charlie. Thanks to you. Thank you. And we'll see everyone next week. Cheerio. The Athletic.